Welcome to the Let's Get Uncomfortable podcast, the show that encourages open dialogues over closed minds. I'm Torrance, and with each episode, we will be diving into a tough topic regarding race or class in the hopes that we can build understanding and ultimately unity. So join me as we get outside of our comfort zones and engage different perspectives. You're listening to episode five of the Let's Get Uncomfortable podcast. Today, we'll be discussing the practice of redlining and gentrification. And our special guest is Josh Poe, who is an urban planner here in Louisville. Josh, can you please introduce yourself? Oh, yeah. Good morning. My name is Josh Poe. I'm a geographer and a urban planner and the co-principal investigator with the Root Calls Research Center here in Louisville. Uh, Root Calls Research Center was started by Jessica Bellamy and myself in January. Uh, we're a grassroots, grassroots-led research organization. We believe that the means of production for knowledge and data should not solely be controlled by major institutions and academia, that knowledge and data should be democratized and the means of production for knowledge and data should actually be controlled and owned by communities. And so we're trying to produce counter narratives. We train and work with impacted community members on developing their own research projects and investigate their own community concerns, uh, operating around the notions of visibility, recognition, and representation. Awesome. A little bit about my background, how I got into geography and more specifically radical geography and urban planning. Uh, I'm from Appalachia. My identity is mostly around being Appalachian. And I think that's really important when we think about this work because a lot of times in this country, uh, we erase class and we don't have a very solid analysis around class and the functionality of class. And so we just kind of lump everything in as like white people are just white people and black people are just black people, which really services, you know, capitalist and pro-capitalist narratives, right? And and really serves to divide workers and and destroy any sort of cross-racial solidarity that exists among the working class. And so there's a long history of that. And you could even make the argument that the entire history of our country is really that history. Uh, And so being very poor, Growing up in Appalachia, that this really shaped my political analysis. And so I got involved in organizing. I moved to Seattle when I was 19 and got involved with labor organizing. And I didn't really have a good analysis uh, of, of where I was from. And so one of the things that happened is that I became a student of radical black scholars, specifically radical black geographers. And that's really what helped me understand Appalachia I just thought of Appalachia as a place I wanted to get out of, and I didn't really understand the material forces uh, of extraction and capitalist exploitation that really shape my community. My entire work is really based on two things. It's based on being from Appalachia, one, and two, it's based on the generosity and knowledge of Black scholars who have taken time to educate me and mentor me about these issues. And I owe a great debt to, to all the people who've just poured a lot into me. So I went to Berea College for undergrad, which was kind of where you know Appalachian studies and 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 black studies meet. And so that was a, a you know it was a school in Kentucky that was set up as an abolitionist college and for poor Appalachian uh, students to come tuition free. So it's kind of a classless campus. Um, came to Louisville uh, for grad school and, and, and got involved in the urban planning program and realized there are a lot of problems 
and urban planning. And at this time, I was really interested in, in researching gentrification. Most of my work in the last 20 years has been anti-gentrification scholarship or anti-gentrification organizing. And so the redlining project was done really to understand the forces of gentrification and explain those forces. And so I'm at UofL, I'm, I'm kind of embattled with the faculty there because I'm unearthing the historical origins of city planning and really exposing city planning has this um, white supremacist profession that's rooted in white supremacist ideology and uh, just meeting with a lot of opposition among the faculty. I don't know if anybody has experienced this, but when you grow up poor, you know, you're the first person in your family to go to college, you have some level of imposter syndrome. And so that was what was happening to me. The professors at UofL were saying, you know, I had misinterpreted history or I was a conspiracy theorist and, and these things. And I kind of started to believe that. And so at some point, Dr. Hudson sent me an email talking about how excited he was about my work. Uh, now, at this time, Dr. Hudson was the Dean of Arts and Sciences at UofL, right? He, no, a lot, we didn't really have access to him. You know, right. uh, he was this sort of like larger than life figure. Uh, he was one of my academic heroes. He lectured every Saturday, every Saturday at the Saturday Academy. And I would just go there every week and sit down and just write down everything he said, uh, you know, just sort of sit at his feet and listen. So after that email, we developed something of a mentorship, friendship relationship, and he just poured a lot of juice into me. Dr. Hudson really encouraged me to find the redlining maps. He said that was a kind of a hole in my research, and if I could locate those, it would really pull it together. And so that was probably 2011. I would, I'd already graduated at this point. And so we sort of embarked on this process to locate those maps. And the sad part of that is uh, I found the maps in 2013 in the cartographic archives in DC. And I made, you know, I made the, the story map out of that. Dr. Hudson actually passed away about three months before I found them. So he never actually got to see the maps, but I always want to, anytime I talk about this, it's so important that, that I acknowledge that that work came as a result of his leadership Right. Yeah. Dr. Blaine Hudson was an absolute gift to the University of Louisville. He was absolutely incredible. I definitely appreciate uh, your background and I want to go ahead and get right into to redlining. And I know it's a topic that many of uh, my listeners may not know a lot about. So if you could give uh, just a, an explanation of, of what exactly redlining is and, and where it started. You know, redlining very specifically refers to the practice of denying loans in certain neighborhoods because of socioeconomic characteristics rather than physical or structural characteristics. So uh, during, during the New Deal, the federal government put out a series of policies um, to basically uh, it value and valuate property uh, in our largest cities. And out of that, the Homeowners Loan Corporation created redlining maps to guide investment. And those maps assign grades A through D to neighborhoods to indicate their desirability for investment. Typically, black uh, immigrant low-income neighborhoods were given C and D grades, mostly black, more predominantly black neighborhoods. Um, and so that's one aspect of redlining. But I think there's a real danger in only looking at that. And I think we went, so when I talk about redlining, I'm really talking about racial capitalism. And I'm talking about a series of policies to act throughout the 20th century that reproduced the same sort of inequality in an industrial capitalist setting that we had in a plantation economy for the same purpose, for purposes of wealth extraction and economic exclusion. And so when I talk about redlining, I'm really talking about a series of policies from zoning to 
uh, the interstate highways through cities to urban renewal to, or, you know, basically everything the, the urban planning profession came to enshrine. And it's very important that we see those chronologically, right? And so we think of redlining as this new deal policy, but in actuality, its origins go back to the early 20s. And you really have to understand how the profession of city planning was created and why it was created, right? Why do we need residential segregation, right? It's not just because we don't like black people, there's an economic imperative there. And so it's really important that we study people like Frederick Longstead Jr., Harlan Bartholomew, Herbert Hoover, those three people were really the architects of these housing and planning policies that really began around 1917. In 1914, Louisville had a racial zoning policy. And what and, and cities all over the country had racial zoning. And, and what all that meant is that we had black blocks and we had white blocks. And there was a man in Louisville, a black man named William Worley, who was very radical. Uh, he was a student at Simmons University. Uh, he was a member of the NAACP. He owned a printing press at that time. And he had an idea that he would try to buy a house from his friend Charles Buchanan, who lived in Portland. And Buchanan was white. And when he, when he couldn't purchase the house, they would take it to the Supreme Court and overturn the ordinance, and it worked. So that was the NAACP's first legal victory in the United States uh, from a case right here in Louisville. And what that did is it created setting for type of zoning that we have today to, to happen. And so you had people like Herbert Hoover, who convened the Hoover Advisory Commission on Zoning in 1921, bring the most prominent city planners together. They met for about three years over, over the course of three years and came up with this zoning policy. Out of that zoning policy, it was determined that a realtor should never be instrumental in introducing any race whose presence would be a threat to property values. And so this was really where the conservative argument that this was a private practice gets debunked, right? This is the federal government in 1924 codifying race in real estate science. So we got to ask ourselves, what does it mean to make a group of people a threat to property values? And we've got to remember that it is imperative in capitalism to produce group differentiated identities, right? That is how capitalism functions. And that goes back, you know, even capitalism in Europe, when it was just white people who weren't white then had group differentiated identities that were produced and there's an economic imperative there. So there was an economic imperative in connecting race to property values. And since wealth creation was primarily contingent on property acquisition and home ownership, right? We can make that case that you essentially lock black people out of the ability to create capital. And not only that, you also lock anybody who lives in proximity to black, black people out of the ability to create capital. And so what that means, the physical space that black people occupy in this country are actually a threat to capital access. And so when capital moves to an area, black people have to move away. If black people move to an area, capital moves away. So you essentially lock people out of being able to access um, capital and wealth in that economy. And so that's really why, that's, that's, how, that's how redlining was able to function. And so by the time the consultants go into neighborhoods to make these grades in the 30s, that system's already in place and well-established. And that's why they were able to rank neighborhoods as low because black people lived there, right? And if black people live there, the consultants would say things like, uh, these loans have to be made and serviced on a different basis. 
well, what does it mean to set up a different mechanism for capital acquisition for certain groups of people in our country? What that means is you've essentially created two economies, right? And you've created a, a two economies solely based on group differentiated identity that we call racism. And so that's what racial capitalism is. Nancy Leong defines racial capitalism as deriving social or economic value from racial identities, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's very simple. Uh, I had a friend of mine a few weeks ago ask me to help her sell her house and she's black. And I knew exactly what she was asking me when she called me, right? <laughs> it's not the person I've done this. Um, and and if you, whenever I present and I say that, black people all start always kind of laughing because they know exactly what I'm talking about. A lot of middle class, upper middle class and above white people have no idea that this happens. But when black people sell their homes, typically, and I'm not citing research on this, this is my own personal experience that I've seen. Typically, uh, you know, they make the home look like white people live there, right? They take down their pictures. Uh, they take anything that's culturally, any, you know, any sort of cultural identifiers, create that sort of image that white people live there and the, sell, the home sells for a higher value. And so that's, that's sort of the, 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 the manifestation of this process. Mm. Now, I, I thought it was really interesting how you were talking about when capital, for, in order for capital to come in, it has to not be around African-Americans or, or black Americans. And we've seen that throughout history. And we've seen that even here in Louisville, uh, when you talk about Walnut street, right? Uh, Walnut street was a thriving area for African-Americans uh, in that time period that you're talking about the thirties and forties. And we came through with urban, urban renewal and, and gentrification here in Louisville and Walnut street now is essentially nowhere to be found. Yeah, and it's so important that we see that has a national policy and that we connect that historically to the black freedom colonies that arose during Reconstruction. And so you really have two instances. I'm getting a little bit outside of my field of scholarship with this, but I think I can say safely that, that you really have two instances in the history of our country where black people had some level of in independence and some level of economic mobility. I don't want to. I don't want to create a, a picture that 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 was, that that lasted for very long, or mm -hmm. that 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 or that that was somehow. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to oversimplify what I'm saying here. But I, I think there's a danger in oversimplifying this. But you had two instances where basically black people had some level of independence and economic mobility, and that was after Reconstruction, when black people had some level of, of, of settlement on land and were able to start freedom colonies. You know, you had sharecroppers unions at Arkansas start, you know, pop up and, and these sort of, sort of things. That independence was met with white terrorism, mm. right? Uh, mobs of white people came into those areas, murdered black people in mass, drove them out. My, this is really the basis of a lot of my scholarship. What you have in an industrial setting is those same things were reproduced. And so you can think of Black Walnut Street or Walnut Street and Black Wall Street in Tulsa. Every city had a black area like that where black people had their, you know, like sort of a commercial district, their own neighborhood, basically had mm -hmm. the same things white people had materially, right? Uh, and we're establishing a really high level of not just economic independence, but cultural independence. And so all those areas were areas of just, you know, black cultural excellence. You know, you had jazz musicians touring the country. They all came to those areas. So on Walnut Street, you know, Duke Ellington, uh, all, you know, all, all the great 
jazz musicians played there on a regular basis. And so this is what city planners like Bartholomew did. They came into those areas in the 30s and justified the wholesale destruction of those areas mm. as federal policy, right? And so people like Bartholomew were very rooted in what they call colonial aspects of planning. They studied colonial town planning in South Africa. They studied it in South America, and they were very proud and very brazen about wanting to, about needing to recreate those same patterns in this country. And so when Bartholomew goes into Russell, you know, he says, uh, you know, it's impossible for the people here to have good housing, right? Because they don't want good housing. And so they start making these cultural explanations around poverty and really linking poverty with blackness and developing this sort of long, uh, you know, harmful paternalistic narrative that, uh, that, that, that poverty and especially black poverty is linked to some sort of cultural deficiency, right? And making the case that these neighborhoods should be destroyed. And that's where we get the 1937 Housing Act. That's where we get the 1949 Housing Act. And that's where we get the 1956 Highway Act that Bartholomew was all very instrumental in creating. And this was systemic. This happened all over the country. So all those neighborhoods were destroyed and targeted within the same number of years. And so you're not only destroying, um, you're not, it's, and it wasn't just economic destruction, right? It was cultural destruction. Those jazz musicians after that had to go to Europe to tour. And so when we think about the mechanisms for genocide, right? When we think about like there are certain mechanisms that, that, like, that, you know, that, that the UN uses to measure genocide, uh, some of those existed within urban renewal, right? You, 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 you destroy places, you know, you displace people, you contain people, uh, you, you take away their ability to uh, interact with each other, uh, you destroy their culture, and those things happen. And I think that's really the appropriate way to look at um, those policies of the 20th century as mm -hmm. a form of structural violence. Right. And I think it's important for people to know exactly how intentional this was and how intentional it was from the federal government standpoint. I think a lot of people, when they hear about redlining or what they know with redlining, they think that it was the banks that were making these rules, but the banks can't give loans unless they are backed by the FHA. And the Federal Housing Administration really set these rules and enforced them. And it was so intentional, especially when you talk about uh, earlier, you mentioned how they tried to link poverty with African-Americans. You know, that was a real thing, especially when we saw great white flight where people were leaving the cities and we started building suburbs and really kind of sprawling out. It was all for white people. And the real estate agents went so far as to show hey, look what's going on in the ghettos in this low-income housing. You know, you've got multiple families living in one house or in one area, working multiple jobs. They don't have time to keep up with their houses or to keep up with what they have. And so then they become slums and they become dirty. And so they made all of that, made it to believe as if that was inherently uh, what African-Americans or Black people do. And they used that fear inside of white people to make sure that we kept this segregation going. Um, I know in reading Richard Rothstein's uh, Color of Law 
and a number of other resources as well that with blockbusting, you know, real estate agents would pay black people to walk through white neighborhoods so that they would sell. Uh, they would make phone calls to white families and have black sounding names and ask for, um, you, you know, other, other black people. And this were scare tactics so that they would sell so that then they buy low and then sell high. You know, um, it was, it was insane. And I know that one thing that people want to ask is if black people did have houses back then, how, how are they able to get capital if they couldn't get it from banks? And I wanted to know if you could explain kind of the, the contract lending. Basically like a seller finance loan, right? So you're not going back through a bank. You're just buying a house from another person. Anybody can, anybody can, can issue that. The problem is that those loans were not guaranteed and that they were not based on, um, uh, the same federal regulations. And so that's what it meant in the, in the redlining maps when the consultant said, like, we don't mean to say that loans cannot be made in these areas, but they need to be made and serviced on a different basis. And that's so important. So black people could still access capital, but they could access capital with a much higher risk mm -hmm. and, and, and with a much higher rate. So not only is the risk higher, it's a lot more expensive to get that, and the, and it's and the capital is much is 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 much more scarce. Mm -hmm. But you hit on a lot of things right there that are, I think are important to kind of unpack. And one is the is the intentionality, which I'm going to get into in a minute. But also the idea that the banks did this, and I think it's so important that we see redlining. Had this was not a private pro project. This was done by the federal government, but it was done on behalf of the private sector. And so I think we kind of have this image of this country that the federal government sets at the top of this power hierarchy, and that's not the case at all. The federal government was very much acting as sort of a client to the banking industry to set these policies in motion to benefit the banking industry. So when the federal consultants would come to town, they would work with local real estate uh, interest and financial interest in that town to create these maps and these reports and then that would just be handed over to the private banks, right? So that's what it was. It was done on their behalf. And thinking about white flight, it's, it's going back to the zoning uh, ordinance in 1924 and the idea of racial capitalism. The highest ranked neighborhood in Louisville was the Indian Hills Mockingbird Valley neighborhood, mm -hmm. right? Then it's important to realize that, that in the maps, the consultants say the, the, the price level of the homes were not the guiding factor in making these grades. So that blows any theory of free market economics out of the water, right? Every time I give this presentation, I ask the audience, like, have anyone, has anyone taken an economics class? Typically, most people raise their hand, depending on where you are. And so no one gets this in economics class, right? Like economic theory does not, you know, it, it, it doesn't take any of this history into account. And so if the price level of the homes were not the guiding factor in valuing the homes, what was the guiding factor? And so in that Indian Hills neighborhood, that wasn't necessarily where people wanted to live during that time. It was far outside the city. It was undeveloped. The reason it was ranked the highest is because it had the highest restrictions, right? And what that means is that those deed restrictions were put on properties that would forbid the sale of that property to black people. And those deed restrictions had expiration dates. So in older parts of the city, those deed restrictions were expiring, which, mean, meant, which meant that black people would eventually be able to live there, right? Mm -hmm. And since black people were a threat to property values, i.e. a threat to capital, we need to value 
the places farther out in the city has the highest rank. And that's really what created white flight. What that means is if you're someone who bought a house in Indian Hills in 1938, you're not especially wealthy. You're not among the Louisville elite. You don't live in one of the elite neighborhoods. You just live far out in the country. By 1945, your home value has increased exponentially for no other reason than black people cannot live in your neighborhood. And so white wealth was directly contingent upon black exclusion and black banishment. And so, uh, you know, you end up with a society that just floats on unearned wealth and privilege with no idea that, he, that there's any of this happened. The flip side to that is if you're a white person that lived in Shawnee Park, by 1945, your home values have decreased or they're stagnant because you live in proximity to a black neighborhood, right? Mm. And so what do you do? You sell that house or you rent it out, right? And you move farther east. And this is really what created white flight. Meanwhile, we have an entire mechanism of public policy pouring all kinds of capital into infrastructure like sewer lines and building the suburbs. And we have a whole lending practice set up. So that, but it was, it still, it goes back to the racialized nature of real estate science that set this up. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the intention around this. And I think it's really important to, to, because it took me a long time to really analyze the intention. And for a long time, I, I, I think there's kind of a danger in looking at this through the lens of racism, has racism being this sort of psychological issue. And I think that was where a lot of people have landed. Like, well, you had people like Bartholomew who were racist, right? And that's mm -hmm. what happened. And I also think that's a danger in some of the popular literature at the moment. Read America's Johannesburg by Bobby M. Wilson, right? Like, that's the book to read. Uh, uh, I, I, think, I, I think Richard Rothstein stands on the shoulders of a lot of black scholars that maybe perhaps did he didn't draw from adequately. And so it's important that we read people like Angela Davis, Walter Rodney, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Clyde Woods, Franz Fanon, Stuart Hall, uh, and, 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 and really be rooted, in that, be rooted in that sort of black scholarship. You know, I don't think the books that we need to read are gonna be in the airport or in Target. <laughs> um, and so the intentionality is getting missed here. Like these are material, issues. And, and I think it's important that we connect racism to those sort of material issues and connected to Ruth Wilson Gilmore's concept of premature death, right? And so thinking about it from that lens, I was a labor studies major before I became a city planner. And I'm reviewing all the redlining maps, all the redlining documents. Um, and I kept coming across one phrase to justify redlining, uh, because the notion of creating homogenous neighborhoods was so important. And so the phrase was mixed neighborhoods destabilize markets. That's why we have to do this. And for a long time, I didn't know what that meant. I thought maybe that meant that, that, that they were worried about racial strife within these neighborhoods and that would create market destabilization. But that never really made a lot of sense to me. And that's not really, that's sort of ahistorical given how industrial capitalists thought. And so in reading people like Bobby Wilson, I came to realize that the labor movement was very powerful, you know, between, nine, say, between 1914, 1920, right? You had a massive wave of black migration from the South, fleeing white terrorism. At the same time, you had a massive wave of European immigrants who were mostly from Eastern and Southern Europe coming into the country, who were very radical, right? Bringing backgrounds of radicalism with them. And there was a real fear that having these two groups of people in the same neighborhood would give rise to a level of union organizing and socialism that the country had never seen, right? 
1917, you had four million workers go on strike. That's one out of every five workers. This was devastating to industrial capitalists at that time. That's what they meant by mixed neighborhoods, destabilized markets, right? If you're hmm. a factory owner and your factory shut down for four months out of the year, that's, that's, that's economic destabilization. That's loss of profit. That is taken very, very seriously. And so people like Herbert Hoover understood this very well. Keep in mind, Hoover was a mining engineer. And during this time, mining engineers got to travel all over the country and study labor practices. Hoover, Hoover became an expert in what he called race management, right? And using race, using racial identities to manage labor was sort of his area of expertise. For instance, when he worked in Australia, he would bring in Italian workers to break strikes. When he worked in South America, he would import Chinese workers to break strikes. And so you have this mining mogul who's now sort of the architect of our housing policy, right? And crushing that cross-racial solidarity was an imperative in our housing policy. And that's really why we have residential segregation as we know it. In, 19, in 1919 or 1917, I can't remember, the National Real Estate Board launched an Own Your Own Home campaign. Mm -hmm. And that campaign was designed around the idea that if we can create a nation of homeowners, these strikes will stop because homeowners don't go on strike. And that was a private program that was later adopted by the National Labor Relations Board. So it started in private real estate, but it moved to federal labor policy, right? And the idea was if you have these groups of people, European immigrants and black people living in densely populated cities, those are apartments, they're living together in apartments, right? Uh, that is a, that's a breeding ground for, what, for radicalism and strikes, right? They, they can develop mutual aid support. They can live in those apartments and withstand any sort of strike. You can't really starve them out, right? There's an imperative there for sort of this sort of mutual class solid, mutual class solidarity uh, that was seen as a huge threat. But if you take the, but if you, you can break that by locking people into a 30 year mortgage. And so this is really what created the white middle class. A lot of those immigrants during that time were not considered white in 1917 they had to be assimilated into whiteness, right? And so by 1945, they've got a 30-year mortgage. They're in the suburbs. They're grilling hot dogs. They're, in, <laughs> they're invested in whiteness because their whiteness is linked to property ownership. And right. the flip side to that is that Black people got left behind, trapped yeah. in, in urban poverty. And it's so important that we link that urban, that urban poverty and concentrated poverty was directly related to low wages for industrial capital, right? So industrial capitalists were able to keep black people out of unions and keep them in what they called low skilled positions and pay them lower wages, which directly translated into higher profits. Right. Yeah, you, you hit on a, a couple of things there. You hit on a lot, uh, but a couple of things I definitely want to talk about. Uh, in the beginning, I know we started with contracting there. And one of the really dubious parts of those contracts uh, that African-Americans were able to get because they weren't able to get normal loans, those 30 year fixed loans is that normally if you miss a payment, you know, interest will go up, you'll get behind and you can still try to, to pay it back or work with the bank in order to do that. But with those contract loans that, that they were able to get in this time period, once you missed a payment, you forfeited everything that you had paid into those contract loans. You lost all of that money. They evicted you and then they, and then they rented or sold that house to someone else. So, you know, that it was just crazy. 
And I yeah. think that that's something that a lot of people uh, don't recognize or, or don't really know about, about how intentional it was to keep African-Americans poor during this time. And the other thing that you, uh, you hit on there is when you're talking about strikes and how often we had strikes, you know, in the, in the early 19th, um, 1900s, we can't have that today. And it's for exactly what you mentioned. A lot of people talk about the protests that we're having today and having people out in the streets and, and bringing awareness to systemic racism and, and those issues. But if you really, really want to make a difference and want to protest and really be heard, in a capitalist society, which we live in, you have to have people in their pockets. And this country cannot run without people on the line working Ford, working at GE, working at, for Amazon, uh, the, these low-wage workers. These companies are actually built on the backs of the lower class. If the lower class decides not to show up for work for two or three months, they're going to feel it. Absolutely. That's it, right? Yeah, that's why we have an, yeah, that's why we have an entire, you know, education system set up to prevent that from happening but sorry right. go on yeah. yeah yeah no no and it's crazy because we can't strike like that today our low our lower class cannot strike like that because over 60 percent of americans are living paycheck to paycheck and if they and if they don't go to work for four weeks or five weeks or however long it would take for these companies to say all right we're losing money we've got to do something let's join this fight and make sure that we do what we need in order to help our lower class to help minorities but they know that they can wait it out because at some point they've got to go back to work because they will lose houses they won't be able to feed themselves they will have all of these issues that that won't allow them to continue to strike and, and make their points. Well, other, well, but I mean, that's always been the case, right? And, but, but other countries deal with that and that's where mutual aid support comes in, but you have to have sort of this radical reimagining of society, but you hit on something that's really important there, you know, protesting is not organized. And, <laughs> and, and so, you know, has, has poor people where you only have, you know, organizing, and revolutionary strategy and scholarship really comes from like targeting those accesses of power where people are vulnerable, which basically means the power to withhold. Mm -hmm. That's really all we have. We can withhold labor and we can withhold rent. And that's why labor organizing and tenant unionizing are really where we need to be putting our energy. I think massive tenant unionizing and, you know, organizing Amazon and Walmart workers is so important right now. And one of the things, you know, I'm a, I'm a poor white person, so I'm mostly, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to poor white people. And the thing that happens, the thing that would happen for poor white people, if you organize Amazon workers, right, and, and those white workers join in that, they're going to see that the state will enact the same sort of violence to crush that strike that's typically used for black people, right? And so the real goal is to bring them into the struggle. The struggle is the solution. There's nothing that radicalizes people more than getting hit over the head with a bully club, hit with pepper spray, and getting shot with rubber, rubber bullets. Like when you realize that the state will do that to you, that's a very radicalizing mechanism, right? And so yeah. if we bring white people into the labor movement, even if they have deplorable politics, those deplorable politics are going to erode when they meet that sort of state level violence. And they're going to realize that this pseudoscience that we have around race and complexion is designed to create what Du Bois called a mental wage and make them feel superior to black people, right? And sort of keep them obedient. That's going to erode and they're going to realize that their real material solidarity is based around class solidarity with black people and black communities. And that's why labor organizing is so important. Man, 
Absolutely. Now, one thing I want to talk about is I know we've we've gone through uh, redlining and 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 how it was really enacted in in the 30s and and 40s through um, through FHA and through other um, and through other initiatives. What I what I want to talk about now is the effects that we are feeling uh, of redlining still today, and especially I know that you helped uh, you helped highlight Louisville's redlining map. Louisville is one of the hardest hit by redlining when you look at how segregated cities still are. I think we're up there uh, along with Detroit. So can you talk a little bit about how the effects of redlining are still being felt today here in Louisville or even nationwide? Yeah, and I actually think Louisville is an outlier. Uh, And one of the reasons for that is that after the Civil War, the South is basically under occupation. Since Louisville was a neutral site, it was not under Union occupation. So what you had was a massive influx of Confederate officers and high-ranking Confederate officials into Louisville. And Louisville essentially became like the Confederate capital after the Civil War. We don't talk about this a lot, right? Uh, Those Confederate officers did not want to live under Union occupation. They were welcomed in Louisville, much like the Nazis were welcomed in Argentina. So all your journalists, all your politicians, all your school board members, the whole power structure consisted of this sort of Confederate elite and they were very proud of the Confederacy. And they had a particular social management system that they enacted that we're still feeling the effects of here. For example, the Southern Baptist Seminary moved from South Carolina to Louisville. And so we don't really think about that. Like, what does it mean when the Southern Baptist Seminary is in your city, right? This is like the Vatican of slavery, right? And so we don't really think about the people who grew up here. They don't really uh, and I mean like white middle class people, I don't think they really see this because they're just sort of born into it. And it's, it's to them, it's, it's totally normalized. And so that same, those same sort of like plantation elements exist here. And so it's so important when we think about Louisville, you know, Louisville started as Fort Henry, right? It was, uh, uh, so it began with, you know, this history of settler colonialism. If we think about the Brown family, which is the wealthiest family in town, right, their family can be traced back to fighting with George Rogers, Rogers Clark in, you know, like the, the genocidal nature of settler colonialism. Their family was also a very large slaveholder. So you have this history of settler colonialism mixed with plantation uh, um, power, you know, sort of mobilizing economically for today. And we're left with all that residue. Uh, and so Louisville is segregated much differently than other cities. You know, the Census Bureau gives you 25 ways to measure segregation. None of them really apply here. It's segregated. So in most cities, you have pockets of segregation, meaning you have multiple black neighborhoods, right? There are multiple places in town where black people live. And in Louisville, you know, generally, that's not the case. Most black people live in the West End, Smoketown and Newburgh. Like, you know, if you really look at the concentration of the population, there are some other places like Clifton Heights scattered out. But I mean, when you talk about the majority of the population, most black people are in the West End. And so that's very different. And so what does that mean for gentrification, right? What does that mean now when capital comes to those neighborhoods? And this is one of the things that I'm so concerned about with Louisville is that since other cities have multiple low income neighborhoods, as people start to get displaced, the process is very slow people move around, people move from one low-income area to another. Since Louisville doesn't have that, the question is where are people going to go as displacement starts to occur, right? And so I think the danger is that we we could see massive, no, we're going to see massive increases in Black homelessness in this city due to 
the investment that's been happening since 2015. And so the way developments always work with, with urban land, you know, with, with capitalism sort of mobilizing land for investment is cities have sprawled, right? And as they sprawl, you know, you're able to access new land in the suburbs and convert that into put, basically put that into production, right? And zoning kind of like creates this and facilitates it. So if I'm a developer, I buy land far outside the city, is zoned agricultural, I take it to the planning commission. I'm a developer, so they love me on the planning commission, probably got a couple buddies on the planning commission, right? And I say, hey, I want this zone residential. And they're like, okay, bam. That land was worth 300,000, now it's worth 2.1 million. That's yeah. well, that's how yeah. it works. The same thing is happening inversely, is like an inverse spatial mechanism with gentrification. Developers are looking inward, and the same way that agricultural zoning is keeping the land value depressed outside the city, black bodies are keeping that land depressed inside the city. We still have, black people are still basically a zoning category, although not by law, by in reality. And so what that means is I'm a developer, I go into Smoketown, I'm buying houses from black families for 40, 50, $60,000. They're $60,000 because black people live there. That's mm -hmm. the only reason, right? The return on that investment is imperative that white people move to that area. That's how I'm going to get that return. And this is how gentrification works. It's directly connected, once again, to racial capitalism and redlining. Um, and so attracting white capital and white residents to that area is related to the type of returns we need to get. Now, let's go to Russell, right? Let's think about Russell. We have massive investment in Portland, and that investment in Portland is moving south mostly around 26th and 28th Street. You can really trace that in a Southern direction, right? And so you've got the Urban League Sports Facility, you've got the Russell Place of Promise Warehouse Facility, all this along 28th, LDG Development's making, it's building a 288 unit apartment building right there on 28th. That could be market rate, right? Mm -hmm. Now, has that moved south, you've got Elliott Avenue. The city puts Elliott Avenue on, under surveillance. Uh, you've got a nonprofit housing developer called HPI that's buying up tons of properties in the area along with new directions, other nonprofit housing developers. The city, the city has Elliott Avenue under surveillance. They're buying and foreclosing on all the properties on Elliott Avenue, right? They put Jamarcus Glover's home under surveillance. They start watching Jamarcus Glover. They target Jamarcus Glover, eventually get three nuisance ordinances on Jamarcus Glover's home where he rented to take that property, right? Mm -hmm. And so once again, what I'm trying to say is the return on investment for white capital is directly contingent upon black exclusion. There's no way Breonna Taylor is going to be murdered had the city not targeted that home for investment and for acquisition, right? If you go back and look at those nuisance ordinances, you've got the mayor's office working in, in, in partnership with LMPD to take that property. That's, that's why that, that's why that occurred. And so, this just an inverse mechanism that's happening that's a historical pattern of redlining the problem is that i see what's happening right now as being much more devastating than anything that occurred under redlining and urban renewal right median household income in russell's under twenty thousand. so you've got public investment and this is so important with louisville this is public investment it's not private investment right mm -hmm. and so when the public side leads that means by the time private capital shows up, the table's already set for them. So it's a more rapid process. And so you've got a neighborhood where the cities through Russell Place of Promise and philanthropy 
they're investing in 135 market rate homes in Russell. What does it mean when you build 135 market rate homes in a neighborhood where median income is below 20,000? It's not for the people who live there, right? Right, right? It means rents are going to increase. And we know if rents increase, people end up homelessness, especially if they increase rapidly. Right. A 2012 study done um, that showed that a $100 increase in median rent is connected and associated with a 10 to 15% increase in homelessness, right? And we have to think about the, the roles that different actors play in this process, the roles that the city play, the roles that developers play, the roles that nonprofits play, and the roles that police play. Yeah, and I, I thought it was interesting where you specifically, you know, talked about these neighborhoods that have been predominantly black for so long here in Louisville, including Smoketown. So I actually grew up in Smoketown, uh, and I remember my grandmother bought uh, our house for, I think it was like fifty-three or $55,000 in, in early uh, 1990. And now houses in that area, I mean, they're going, these are shotgun homes. Um 1200 square feet 1500 square feet homes that are going for 260 or uh, $280,000 which is which is just insane and Smoketown was the uh, was the oldest predominantly black neighborhood in Louisville for the longest time up until 2015 2016 when we've started uh, gentrifying uh, Smoketown I mean you know when I was growing when I was growing up there there was no Logan Street Market. Um, there was no Red Top Hot Dogs. There was no uh, Trouble Bar and like all these other places. And obviously the houses didn't look the same way that they that they look now as well. But Smoketown is now no longer predominantly black. Um, I mean, that's that, that's that's we need policies that protect those neighborhoods the same way we have historic preservation that mm-hmm. protects the historical aspects of buildings. We don't have any sort of historical preservation of black communities in this country. And I think that's really has, you know, that's really what we need to talk about as, as in my profession in urban planning and geography uh, is to really make racial justice um, at the forefront of looking at those policies, because right now all we're doing as urban planners is just going in and gentrifying neighborhoods. Right. And I think that a big thing here in Louisville that a lot of people are not understanding and not seeing the connection is, you know, we have Nulu now and we have the gentrification that's going on in in Germantown and Shelby Park area and Smoketown area. And they're not realizing the connection with this when you're talking about rooting out the people who live in these neighborhoods and taking away low income housing. You know, we don't have any projects downtown anymore. They've all been uh, they've all been taken out, and they were supposed to be replaced with low income housing for those same people. But that has not happened. And the connection that people aren't seeing is that we now have a surge in homelessness here in Louisville, and it's happened in the exact same amount of time in which we've been gentrifying these areas. And you have to be able to make that connection and taking that a step further, the majority over 50% of the people that have been uh, that have been added to the homeless population are African American. So that is that it's directly correlated and it is negatively affecting the African American population here in Louisville. Yeah. uh, In relation to that, uh, what I'm really concerned about, we did an analysis is Russell. We did an analysis of Russell of land ownership and found that only 18% of the land in Russell is actually owned by people in Russell. We did a follow-up analysis uh, of, of, of subsidized housing in Russell. Mm-hmm. And what we found, you know, subsidized housing, Section 8 expires. If you're a landlord, you sign on and that there's an expiration that you can choose to renew. And most landlords choose to renew because they can't convert that to market rate, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm a Section 8 landlord in Russell, 
and the city's making that kind of investment in the neighborhood to build market rate housing, the next time my section eight expires, I might be able to convert that to market rate. Right. Now, so what we found in Russell is that 80% of the subsidized units are expiring in the next three years. If you have that amount of public investment, there's a danger that a lot of those landlords might choose to not renew their section eight vouchers, which means they're going to just, they're going to evict everyone right. all at once. And so I think, and I don't want to sound like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park where I'm just <laughs> like making these warnings, but I think, I, but seriously, I think there's a real serious danger here uh, that has a result of public policy. We could just, and this is what I've told the mayor and this is what I've, I've talked about. Like we could be, we could see like a massive displacement from Russell and a massive increase in black homelessness. That's going to be far more devastating than anything that happened during redlining or order renewal. And so the scholar Ananya Roy talks about this, uh, um, uh, there's the director of the Institute on Inequality and Democracy at UCLA. She talks about this, uh, and, and also Pete White, who's the director of LA CAN, uh, has displacement being when you have some place to go, right? And so we have this sort of peripheralization that's happening right now where we're not, you know, segregation has been a problem, but we're, it's more peripheralization where black people are being moved to the outer edge of the city and still living in segregated enclaves, right? except they're on the edge of the county now. Uh, and so they define displacement as when you have some place to go. Mm-hmm. Banishment is when you have no place to go but, but jail or death. And that's what, that's what scholars are calling racial banishment. There's a great, there's a great quote by a planner named Libby, Joan, Libby Porter. Um, and she asked this question, what does it mean to, ex- to exist across the thresholds of recognition? And I think in terms of public policy right now, in, in a sort of a neoliberal sense, we have a group of people who are not valued enough to meet the threshold of recognition, right? And so the people in Russell who are making under $20,000 a year are making under $20,000 a year because of all the policies of redlining that we just talked about, right? That right. ensured that that's, that is why they are living in that type of poverty. And now we have public policies coming in that aren't really acknowledging their existence. Those are policies, policies of erasure, and so they're also policies of banishment, right? They're not taking them into account. There's no safety net there. There's no question about where are people going to go. They're simply left to fend for themselves as that, as that capital moves into their neighborhood. Right. Well, Josh, I want to thank you for, for coming on to the, the Let's Get Uncomfortable podcast today. And we end every episode with talking about solutions to the topic that we talk about during the episode. So I want to ask you, as we're talking about gentrification, as we're talking about redlining and, and the effects that are still being felt today, what do you think are some of the solutions for us to move forward as a community, as a city, and as a nation? Yeah, and I wish we had more time to talk about this. This problem is so multifaceted that we could really spend four hours just kind of diagnosing the problem. And so I I think it's so important to spend a lot of time diagnosing the problem, right? I think we really have to engage in a level of scholarship and study to make sure that our solutions are not shallow and and that they are actually dealing with root causes. And so I think one of the solutions goes back to uh, what you said about power. I think we need to engage in massive tenant organizing and base building, right? And, and so, uh, in, you know, there are a couple th- different theories of how to change society. One is an influence theory. One is a reform theory. 
And the other is the sort of abolition theory. And I think we really need to engage in a sort of radical imagining to ask, what does it look like to have zero rent? Or sorry, zero evictions during a pandemic. What does it look like to have moratoriums on rent increases in neighborhoods that are gentrifying? What does it look like to have a massive land redistribution, right? We have a lot of public land in Russell and Smoketown. That a lot of that land is being given to developers, right? Why can't that land be directly redistributed to black residents in this sort of collective ownership model? So there are all sorts of things on the table that we're not looking at because we're centering uh, uh, racial capitalism in our policy decisions and we're not willing to have a real radical reimagining of that. Uh, we need to have a serious conversation about require, requiring community benefits agreements in these developments. Any large development should have a community benefit agreement where they're meeting with the community, working through a process to make sure that the community is actually getting something out of that development and it's not just based on ROI for the investor. And so and, 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 and more than that, we have to have a serious conversation about our police budgets. And so every time I talk to people about redlining, you know, people say like, well, black neighborhoods were denied investment. Black neighborhoods are not denied investment. Black neighborhoods have massive investment through public safety and police terrorism. So we're investing in the terrorism of the community and the mass incarceration of the community, but we're not investing in the infrastructure in that community. And we really need to ask ourselves, what are our theories of change there, right? Do we believe that people commit crimes because it's part of their culture, that they're just so culturally deficient that they're inherently violent? Or are people committing crimes because, you know, rate, you know because capitalism sort of uh, is, is, is rooted in inequality? And are they committing crimes because they're poor, right? And if people weren't poor, I don't believe they would commit crimes. So what does it look like to have a black community that has everything that white communities have, right? All the infrastructure, all the investment, and, and, and we get that through defunding and divesting from those police budgets and reinvesting in community infrastructure, reinvesting in housing, reinvesting in all the things that make communities healthy. Our LMPD budget's 190 million, our health department budget's about 30 million. And mm -hmm. I think as a city, we need to ask ourselves if that really reflects our values and reflects our analysis and it reflects our theories of change about how to make the city better. Awesome. Well, again, Josh, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. And I think that this is going to be a conversation that our listeners are definitely going to enjoy. Great. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate coming on. First and foremost, I want to thank everyone for their support with this podcast. If you have feedback, ideas for topics, or if you know of someone you would like for me to interview, please email me at thelgupodcast at gmail.com. I'm learning a lot as I continue to grow this podcast, and I've had many of you reach out to ask if you could donate to help offset equipment costs and time. If you feel so inclined, I have created a PayPal account, and it's paypal.me slash lgupodcast. Now for some exciting news. The winner of the $25 gift card for liking and reviewing this podcast is Kelly Hellstern. Email me with an address to send it to. And also a big shout out to Brittany and Andrew Tokich for sponsoring this gift card. Thank you, guys. The biggest compliment you can give this podcast is by sharing it. 
so please continue to do so. I'll be releasing a new episode every other Monday. If you want to hear from me before then, I sat down for the Wandering Mind podcast to talk about mental health in the black community, and I was just on the Just Friends podcast, which is a biographical interview of me and essentially a hangout with my friend Mitch. Both of those podcasts are linked in this episode.